Um, glad to be here. Uh, we're going to be continuing tonight in the Gospel of Mark. What we have been doing and what we will do here again tonight is to look to observe closely um, so as to learn from the ministry of Jesus. Let us begin with prayer and then we'll uh, read our passage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to preach. I pray that we will handle your word rightly, knowing that we are not here to talk about the thoughts of men on this passage, but that we are here to learn your thoughts. May your spirit be present and at work tonight and to speak to each of us according to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in Mark. We're um, in the first chapter now um, up to verse 28. Um, so our, tonight, our reading tonight is going to be starting at verse 28 and then going up through verse 34. And so this is just after Jesus has taught in the synagogue and um, commanded an unclean spirit to leave a man. So then we read, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into the, all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. As we have gone through the book of Mark so far, if there is one thing that I've hoped to emphasize, it is the fact that when or that what we read in the Gospels is an account of what happened when Jesus was here. The emphasis being on the fact that Jesus was here and that he was a person like us. Because Jesus was a person like us, except being without sin, it means that what we hear about in the Gospels can teach us about who we now are in Christ. We can see how during his ministry on earth, Jesus was in situations that are not too foreign from the type of situations that we face. And by looking at these situations in faith, we can be conformed to be more like him. And becoming more like Christ is something that the Bible calls us to do. We see this from what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul strove to be an example to the people at the church of Corinth in the way that he strove to be like Christ. We hear this also from Peter in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 21, where he writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And so Peter writes that in regard to suffering, saying that we are not to avoid suffering um, when we live according to God's will, just as Jesus also did not. And the reason we do this, or the goal that we do this with, um, is described by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 8, and then also 10 and 11. 
Paul writes, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was here physically much like us. He is not here physically now, but that same spirit that was with Christ when he was here on earth, he left with us, and we had that spirit with us here now. And for that reason, I believe that if we consider how it might be if Jesus was here or in the type of situations that we are in, we have a legitimate basis for doing that. Most likely in the things that we face, Jesus did face something similar. And this brings us to our passage tonight. What this passage shows us overall is Jesus as a healer. And so that is our theme for tonight, Jesus as healer. We will consider this under five main headings as we work our way through these verses. We see Jesus as the healer of one, Jesus as a miraculous healer. We will see Jesus as a healer for the purpose of service, Jesus as a healer of many, and Jesus as a healer who must provide full treatment. Our passage begins with two immediatelys. Uh, we read first that immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. The fame of Jesus is spreading now more than it had before. Jesus had been teaching and announcing the kingdom of God uh, before this. But what happened just before this passage is that Jesus had shown his authority both in his teaching and also in his commanding of unclean spirits to leave a man. And so more people talk about him and the news about him has begun to spread. And while this news is spreading, Jesus and the first disciples were returning to the house of Simon and Andrew, which was not far from the synagogue in Capernaum. At this house is Peter's mother-in-law, and she is sick with a fever. In his gospel, Luke describes this as being a high fever, meaning that it wasn't some kind of a light illness, but that Peter's mother-in-law was, in fact, quite sick. In verse 30, we read that they spoke to Jesus about her. Mark doesn't tell us exactly the type of thing that the disciples said to Jesus um, about her, but when they told Jesus about her sickness, they must have said it in some type of a way, with some type of, um, I guess, an emphasis. What they might have said could have been something apologetic. They may have been ashamed that they were bringing this teacher of theirs or this rabbi into the house of a woman who was very ill. But there could also have been some faith in the things that the disciples said to him. They may have spoken to him, telling him of the situation, and after seeing what had taken place in the synagogue, they knew that Jesus, if he desired, could do something about it. We see that type of attitude um, displayed not too much later in verse 40, where we hear of the man with leprosy who came and fell before him, saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so the disciples may have spoken to Jesus, knowing that if it was Jesus' will, he could heal her. But they might not have been bold enough to ask for this yet directly. But whatever their exact wording was, let us first take a moment to observe that disciples did speak to Jesus about it. And I think we can take a lesson from this about prayer. 
Not all of our prayers have to be requests. Many times in our prayers, all we need to do is to tell the Lord about it. We can tell the Lord our situation, we can place it in his hands, and we can trust that he will work. In my own prayer life, I have seen that, if nothing else, this can be a good place to start in my prayers. I can describe my situation, whether I'm up against something that I don't know how to face or um, in the midst of some trouble and not really even sure to describe how it is that I feel. And maybe a request will come out of this, but it doesn't necessarily have to. But the important thing is that we speak to the Lord about it. And so just as it was with the disciples, Jesus heard them and he did what was best in that situation. In verse 31, we read that Jesus raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And in that, we see Jesus as the healer of one. But now let us take a moment to consider Jesus as a miraculous healer. I was a little bit hesitant about how much to discuss this point because I didn't want to get into too much of a diversion. But since it's been an important part of my learning and growth as a Christian, and since I think in some ways we could say this is the first miracle that we see Jesus perform in the Gospel of Mark, um, it's a good point to talk about Jesus as a miraculous healer. There's a tendency that we can have as humans to find alternate explanations for things. This can be especially true of things that might be hard to believe. And miracles, uh, by definition, are things that are hard to believe, and that's part of the point. If they weren't hard to believe, they would not be miracles. Miracles are something that I used to have some trouble with, um, but that I don't have so much trouble with anymore. And the primary reason for this is that I have gotten to know Jesus better. A verse that describes this well uh, is 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Where, Jesus said, or where Paul says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. There are a lot of things that I don't know or understand, but having gotten to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I am convinced that anything I offer to him in faith, including my life, he will be able to guard through this life, through the time of my death, and through the time when I stand before him in judgment. Getting to know Jesus, my Savior, has helped increase my faith with regard to things like miracles. But if I look back, there are other things that I could say have been helpful as well. And perhaps one of the things that helped me most uh, was the writings of T.S. Eliot. You may know of him. He's commonly read in English classes, at least he was back when I was in school. And a lot of his early writing is fairly bleak. Uh, he's most famous for his poem, uh, The Wasteland, which is basically about the barrenness of modern life, which at that time was in the uh, early 1900s. But at some point around the middle of his life, T.S. Eliot became a Christian, and the tone and the focus of his writing changed. I don't know a lot about the background of T.S. Eliot, and I still don't know a lot about uh, the details of what exactly he believed on uh, many different things. But when I was a senior in high school, I had asked for a book of his uh, collected writings because I was trying to become uh, more familiar with um, classic writers. And at some point around the time when I was examining my faith seriously and critically and asking myself whether I could be a Christian, I came across one of his poems, which is titled Ash Wednesday, which I think he wrote either very soon after he was converted or a little before he was converted. And one of the lines from that poem that stuck with me goes, 
I know that time is always time and place is always and only place. And what is actual is actual for only one time and only for one place. So that is to say, in a very literal sense, that all things that happen, happen only once. Nothing happens more than once because the world is changing and time is always moving forward. And so to apply that to the topic of science, that's something that the best science will recognize. What good science does is that it will explain as many important conditions as possible that are present in a situation, and then science will say, based on these conditions and this outcome, this is what we observe. And so from there, good science will draw tentative conclusions. Good science is cautious, it's specific, and it is humble. It knows it is ultimately speaking about only one time and only one place. And so good science is not the thing that it can often be made by different groups, um, such as the New Atheist Movement. I'm not completely sure if that is, is a movement or not, but, but for things like that, it's not what uh, it's often made to be by uh, particularly atheists. And in that sense, there is no conflict between faith and science. As Christians, we say that in these circumstances at this time, when Jesus came into the house of Peter and Andrew, he took the hand of Peter's mother-in-law, raised her up, and the fever left her. Those were the circumstances, and that was the outcome. And we call that a miracle because it can be hard to believe, but it is what Mark faithfully recorded, and what through the faith given to us by God, we believe to be true. And so here we see Jesus as the miraculous healer. Jesus heals in only the way that God can. And we can see that there are different purposes to miracles. They serve a purpose for the people that they help, but they also serve a purpose as signs of who Jesus is. But now let us go on continuing in verse 31, where we read, The fever left her, and she waited on them. So here we see the immediate result of this healing and the healing's immediate purpose. We see Jesus healing for the purpose of service. We'll make several observations on her waiting on them, but first let us see it as a part of thankfulness. I think of this particularly when I remember times in which I have been uh, in, sick or uh, in pain. And during those, th- during those times, the best that I hope for is to be able to get through them, right, and to be how I was uh, before. I just look forward and hope for uh, the time when I am better. As I look forward to that time when I am better, it's usually not wasteful or foolish things that I'm most looking forward to, but I'm looking forward uh, to getting back to be able to do the things that are valuable. And so, soon after I recover, that's the type of thing that I'm most inclined to do. The response to healing is thankfulness and a desire to use a restored health in a way that fits that thankfulness. That's something that's true not only of physical health, but it's true also of spiritual health, or we could say the health of an unburdened conscience. At times, we can feel very convicted by our sin or our guilt, or we can recognize how far short it is that we fall from the calling that we are given. We can look forward to those times, to the times when our guilt doesn't lay so heavy upon us. And in those circumstances, once we have experienced that healing, the proper response, usually the one that we will have, is one of thankfulness. But as we observe the purpose of healing, let us consider further the word service. This word is translated differently in different versions of the Bible. In the ESV, it's translated as serve. It is here translated in the NASB as waited on. 
and it's translated in the King James Version, which could be the most, I think maybe the most rich translation, but also the one that might require the most uh, exposition as ministered unto him. The Greek word there is diakone. It is the same word that was used uh, earlier in the same uh, in the same chapter in verse 13, where we read that uh, the angels were ministering to him. Shares a similar root uh, to the word that we get the title of deacon from. Now, brother Mark uh, preached a good sermon on that a few months ago when he preached on the office of deacon. And the office of deacon is different uh, from the act of service, right? The office of deacon is a designation that certain men are called to, but all Christians are called to serve. So let us think uh, for a moment the ways in which, of the ways in which service can be ministry. For often, service, when it's done in the right spirit, can be one of the best forms of ministry. For one, let us consider these circumstances. So this is after Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John have returned from the synagogue. There Jesus had taught, and the disciples had witnessed the astonishment of all those who heard Jesus' teaching. They had seen firsthand a very um, raw, I guess you could say, form of spiritual warfare, and then they traveled back. And from looking ahead in the passage that we will get to uh, in a moment, we know that not long from here, um, they're going to be um, encountering another crowd that will come up to the house of Peter's mother, of Peter, and they will all be looking to Jesus for healing. And none of these are very light activities. These are the types of things that could easily leave uh, any person exhausted. And so we think about what might be most helpful um, to them after they have gone through these events and as they prepare for what will take place next, it is exactly the type of service that Peter's mother-in-law offers. Her, her service becomes a ministry that will aid Jesus and the disciples as they teach and heal and minister to those near Capernaum. What Peter's mother-in-law is doing here is helping provide physically for Jesus and the disciples so that they can spiritually benefit others. And this is the type of ministry that all Christians are called to live out in one way or another as a part of our calling. We are to look to find opportunities to serve in the ways that will help lead others to a right relationship with God. And so it's a worth, worthwhile question to ask ourselves from time to time, what is it or how is it that we are using service for the spiritual benefit of others? Are we doing what we can to help care for the physical needs of others so that they have the opportunity to grow spiritually. We don't know a lot about Peter's mother-in-law, but this is what she is doing here, right? She's caring for the disciples physically so that they can pre be prepared to care and teach um, and pro uh, uh, provide for the spiritual need of those around them. And whether it was her explicit intention or not, she is doing what she can for the spiritual benefit of others. And that's something that Christians are called to do regardless of what our roles might be. I remember hearing about what was, I think is a good example, but at least one that has um, stuck with me of this from uh, a prayer service or the mission section of a prayer service uh, a couple months ago. And it was where there was um, an evening that the husband set aside to serve their wives so that the wives could participate in hearing a Bible study. In that situation, the, husband, uh, the husbands, as the heads of their households, made occasion to show that in their roles as husbands, one of the most important parts of that role was to make sure that their families, in this case their wives, had the opportunity to grow personally in the knowledge and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the same type of ministry 
also in the ministry of Jesus. For this is the very thing that Jesus did. And in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Perhaps the greatest example that we can see of this in Jesus' ministry is Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. In that action, we see Jesus doing what he could to serve the disciples and to enable the disciples to fulfill the ministry that they are called to, and so Jesus washes their feet. And feet have a certain symbolic significance in the Bible because it is through the use of the feet that the disciples will go on to share the good news of the gospel. As Paul says in Romans 10, verse 15, which is a quote from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The feet are what will carry the disciples as they preach the gospel, and Jesus cares physically for his disciples' feet, enabling them to share the gospel. And I think this is something that we can consider even more broadly, right, as we look, look to one another or look out for one another um, as a part of our uh, Christian family. Paul writes this to the, first, or the uh, church in Thessalonians, or Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. And he encourages Christians to do this type of work generally. He says, See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Always seek for the good of others. And so it's worth looking for opportunities to take those type of actions, whether it's, you know, helping uh, in chores or finding another way to free up time for others so that they can spend time in God's word and getting to know the Lord. So in that, we have healing for the purpose of service, and we see how service is important in helping, uh, uh, I guess, how service itself can be a form of ministry. But let us now go on to see Jesus as the healer of many. We see this now going on into verse 32, where it says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases. We can first note that this takes place in the evening, and you might wonder uh, why that is. I spent a little bit of time wondering about it, um, but I remember something I had heard before, and that was also confirmed by um, several of the commentaries, and it was that the evening was considered to be both the start and the end of the Sabbath to uh, the Jews at that time. So it was the evening before the morning of the Sabbath that would be the start of the Sabbath, and then the evening of the day of the Sabbath that would be the end of that Sabbath. And I think that that can make some intuitive sense, right? How the morning of the next day goes is often determined by how the day finished off the night before, and usually the night is the time when we start thinking most about the things that um, we need to get to that next day. And since the Israelites were not supposed to bear any type of load on the Sabbath, they were honoring the Sabbath by not bringing to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed until after the Sabbath had ended. And so a great number gathered outside the door. We are told that it was all the city. And so when we picture um, this scene that is taking place in this passage, we can picture a great number of people there, right? Especially if this was the city of Capernaum, which was one of the larger cities back in that time. So as we consider this crowd now that is outside the house of Peter, let us make several observations. For one, let us recognize that there was a great need. 
as the people of the town had heard about what Jesus had done, they also recognized a need that they had, whether it was one of their own or in somebody that they knew. And so they went to Jesus to find that same type of healing. And this type of thing can still be true today. We are in a world of great need. For most anyone, if we asked them if there was some need or some concern in their life and if they could find some way to take care of that need, if they would do it, they would say, no, yes, I have this need, and if I could, I would like to have it taken care of. All people have a need that is both deep and great. Most people know that they have a need, but they don't know the extent of that need, either because they deny it or else they misunderstand it. But then when an opportunity for healing presents itself, people go and seek it. As Christians, we know what this need is, and we know the only way that it can be satisfied. And so in this healing of many, we see, again, the great need of the people. But second, let us consider the attitude of Jesus toward the crowd. Before we consider this, let us ask ourselves that question. This is a question that I asked myself more often recently. When we see a crowd, what is it that we see? When we're at the presence of a great number of people and we begin to consider that great number of people, how is it that we look at them? What do we see in those people? Throughout his ministry, Jesus will face many crowds. Here they have gathered to see if he would heal the lame and the demon-possessed among them. Other times they would hear, uh, go to hear him speak or else they would go to look for a sign. Some of these crowds are believing, but some of these crowds are obstinate or even hostile. But when we look at the attitude of Jesus towards these crowds, we see that it is the same. As a healer, Jesus views the crowds with compassion, and so we read, he healed many of them. The compassion of a healer um, is the same attitude that we see in other parts of the gospel. Um, Another instance that we can see it in would be a few chapters later in Mark um, 6, verse 34. Um, And just before this, we hear that Jesus went with his disciples in the boat to go to a secluded place, but then the people around there, when they hear of what Jesus was doing, they rush to get there ahead of Jesus. And then in verse 34, we hear, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. We see this also in Matthew 23, verse 37. This is um, after Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, and he's um, taught against the actions of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Even to an obstinate people and to a crowd where the hearts of many were hardened toward God, who had killed God's prophets, the attitude of Jesus toward that crowd is one of compassion and a desire to gather them together. And even with regard to those who are crucifying him, right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, to those who are casting lots for his clothing, those who are hostile towards him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. When Jesus sees the crowds, his reaction is one of compassion. And that's the type of attitude that God has as well. From the Old Testament, uh, we see this uh, attitude of God even toward a, a wicked people in Jonah 4, verse 
10, right? And Jonah had been sent to Nineveh, right, to um, say that the Lord was about to destroy that city, but then the city repents, right? And then when they repent, God relents of the judgment he had planned to bring upon them. This makes uh, Jonah angry. And so uh, God says to Jonah in 4 verse 10, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? This is explained also in 2 Peter uh, 3 verse 9 where Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, some may argue against this, um, speaking of the wrath and judgment of God. And those things are true. God does not let wickedness go unpunished. But it doesn't contradict that when God is looking at people or at persons, or when viewing a people, that the attitude of God is one of compassion. In the judgment and wrath of God, there is wrath and judgment to the extent that it is just. Matthew Miller preached on this um, last week Sunday morning in the way that God's righteousness requires justice. As it says in Psalm 5, verse 4, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Or in other translations, with you evil cannot dwell. Even in the wrath and in the judgment of God, the wrath and judgment of God never goes beyond what is fitting for the wickedness of the world. In his punishment, God does not go beyond what is right. Perhaps a helpful way of understanding both the judgment and the compassion of God is what we read in Psalm 86, verse 5, where David says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. His righteousness requires judgment, but in his compassion he is ready to forgive. And so what can we learn from this? For one, you can know that it is not the desire of God to judge you or to condemn you. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his mission, and that was his purpose. You may have sinned. You may have sinned many times, and you may continue to sin. You may have committed grievous sins in the past, but it is not the desire of God to condemn you. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When he looks at the crowd, his attitude is one of compassion, and his desire is to heal him, to heal them, just as it is his desire to heal each of us. We only need to look to Jesus Christ in belief and in repentance. Second, we can recognize as we encounter any type of crowd or group, whether they are people who know the Lord or not, that we should look at them with compassion. This is how we see Jesus viewing the crowd in this passage, and is how we see him viewing crowds throughout the Gospels. And in that, he shares the same nature as God. This might not be our first instinct, but we should work on our hearts, encouraging ourselves and reminding ourselves of Jesus' compassion for many until we find our own hearts being softened and caring more for them, having the same attitude as Jesus. Now let us go on to the last aspect of Jesus as healer that we see in this passage, to the last part of verse 34, where we read that he was not permitting the demons to speak 
because they knew who he was. Jesus forbidding the demons to speak is a common occurrence in Mark. We saw something like that in the last passage where Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man uh, when he was saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This reaction of Jesus is common enough uh, that it received its own uh, title among biblical scholars. It's referred to as the messianic secret, which basically refers to how Jesus can be seen as trying to keep quiet those who would proclaim him to be the Messiah. This is particularly true in regard to demons, which we talked about last time, in that Jesus did not want himself to be associated uh, with unclean spirits. But it wasn't only demons that Jesus prevented from saying who he was. Jesus would ask others not to say who he was either, and this was because he had a complete ministry that he needed to accomplish. By his actions, by his miracles, and by his teachings, Jesus' ministry will show and proclaim who he is. It's the entire ministry of Jesus that would make known who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And also, um, Jesus, um, you could say, was quiet about who he was, or at least having it spoken um, by others for his own protection, to a certain extent, or at least for a time. As Jesus' fame continued to grow, many, um, especially the Pharisees, would become hostile towards Jesus, right? And they would seek for an opportunity to kill him. Uh, Mark writes in the 15th chapter, verse 10, uh, speaking of Pontius Pilate, saying, For he, Pontius Pilate, was aware that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. And so as Jesus completed his ministry, it meant that to a certain degree he would need to stay outside the notice of more people, at least for a time. We can hear more about that uh, in the Gospel of John, going first to John chapter 3. This is around the time of the Feast of Booths, and... Uh, oops. Around the time of the Feast of Booths, on to verse 3 of chapter 7. So therefore his brother said to him, speaking to Jesus, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to him, or to them, he stayed in Galilee. And so here we hear again of the time having not yet fully come. We'd heard that same type of language earlier in the chapter of Mark, but in that case, it's speaking of a different uh, time in a different sense. That is, at this time, the time that we are in now in the Gospel of Mark, this is the time when Jesus, by his ministry, demonstrates the power of God on earth. This is when he teaches the disciples. But the time had not yet fully come for his death and resurrection. There was more that Jesus needed to do before all that he was and all that he came to do would be fully revealed. And this is made more clear in the 17th chapter of John, continuing in what is um, the high priestly prayer. Starting in verse 4, Jesus says, 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, which with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you have sent me. As a healer, there was a fully prescribed treatment that Jesus came to deliver. Jesus could not allow that treatment to be cut short by demons who sought to bring an end to that work, or else by the wickedness of men who sought to kill him. Jesus delivered this treatment himself, and when it was complete, he entrusted it to his disciples, giving them the Holy Spirit. As a healer, Jesus did the work of God the Father, and as healer, Jesus gave absolutely everything, including himself. Let us pray.